Thank you for joining us today at River City Church, a church living in love. If you have a prayer need, would like to speak to a pastor, or have questions about today's message, please email us at info at rivercitysmyrna.com. For more information or to give to the ministries of River City Church, please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. God. Hallelujah. This is the day the Lord has made. We want to rejoice and be glad in it. And the psalmist says that, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Hallelujah. We read in Psalm 138, I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day, on the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks. Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they, shall, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lonely, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's worthy of praise. Amen. He's worthy of praise. There's none like unto him. He's the ancient of days. He's the rock of ages. He's the lover of your soul. He's the reason for my living. He's my joy, my fortress, my hope within the uncle. Hallelujah. Father, we so love you. Jesus, we embrace you. We say there's none like unto you. We don't even have the, the appropriate words to describe the magnitude of your love, your goodness, your mercies, your compassion. But you, you enable us to feel it. 
So we thank you for this embrace, for this frequency of love we're feeling amongst us today as a body. Oh, be glorified in our midst today. Let your name be magnified. Even as we worship in unison, let us remember it is unto you. And may you step in our worship. And may this worship and praise enthrone you above all. And even as we worship, build your throne, King of glory. We love you. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the power and the word of our testimony and the power of your love. Thank you, God, that that's all we'll ever need in our suitcases. <laughs> it's all we'll ever need to pack and prepare for. What's to come and what you're going to do through us and how you're going to use us. All we need is your love and the word of our testimonies. God, embolden us to move in your mysterious ways, God. Let us not have to understand. Just trust that it's always better your way. The path is always brighter. There's always more beauty, more peace. That's the only place there's peace. Jesus, would you just teach us this morning, Holy Spirit. Teach us through every step of this morning, through the conversations we have, through the relationships that we grow in as a body when we're here. Let us not take them for granted. And help us to just be taught through you and through Josh as he speaks, God. I just feel like this morning is just going to be a teaching. So I just thank you, Father, that you're the best teacher. You're the only teacher. You're the kindest, the gentlest. We love you so much this morning. Thank you, God, for letting us encounter you together, be with you together. Just pray your blessing over the rest of this service, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's definitely a summer day at RCC, but that's good because I'm going to be preaching. I love how in worship what we had were expressions of how to outwardly love the Lord. And I think that's beautiful. But it's not the only part of Christianity. If that's the only part of Christianity, then the Christianity is way too hollow and it doesn't last. There are other things involved in Christianity that have to be there as well with that. Things like contemplation. Things like faithfulness. Things like being able to look at some of the things that aren't fun and exciting, right? It's not all puppy dogs and lollipops. Even though that's a part of it, much of Christianity is about learning how to die. In fact, that's why we follow who we follow, that portion of it. That's what makes him different than the other gods, historically, is that he was willing to die, and then he was resurrected. That's a big part. That's not a part we love as Christians to really do. We don't like to die. We don't like to not have our own things. We love celebration. We don't like mourning. Just me speaking honestly... I enjoy doing weddings more than I enjoy doing funerals, and that's because there are different feelings involved in both. That's just the truth. We don't know how to mourn well. We don't know how to grieve well. We don't know how to be faithful even really well. But some parts of life, and especially the gospel, 
are those parts that we as New Testament Christians have to do well because the world is watching. And it's not always celebration, right? Sometimes it is sitting with someone and just being present while they're dying, like what's happening with Jesus, right? The disciples couldn't even do that, which I think, as we read this, was their role. Because there's a way to read this in which you think, if they would have prayed in Mark 14, maybe something different would have happened. No. If they would have prayed, they would have stayed with Jesus while it happened. That's what would have happened. That's the fruit of prayer in this. Faithfulness in the tough things. Resolve when it's not fun, right? That's, that's their great miss. That's their great fail here, but it's not so far gone that Jesus can't cleanse it. And I love that about what Jesus does in these passages. So we've been in a season of rest as a church, and it's been really difficult for me because I don't naturally value rest. Um, I enjoy production. I enjoy getting things done. And I have made a decision in these past couple months to really try and slow down. And while rest for me might look like work for someone else, it is rest for me, the way that I've lived this out. And I'm only mentioning this here to remind you that biblically, historically, rest has to come for there to be fruit. There has to be seasons where things aren't growing for there to be things that happen, right? That's just nature. You can look at these trees. Four or five months ago, there was nothing on them. They were resting, right? Now what? So... I just encourage you in the summer months, and we have this calendar taken from the Christian calendar, which um, Sarah is knee-deep in all the time, and I'm learning to love. Um, (laughs) It's a stretch, but it is valuable for me as an Enneagram 3 and as someone who is an achiever to realize that God's pretty good at doing things outside of what I can produce. So things for me like sitting next to a creek and watching it be successful is a great reminder that I had nothing to do with that, right? Like, God's pretty good at making the earth and people. And I can do a little drawing and put together a little sermon, but he makes trees and mountains. So, yay God, right? Amen? (laughs) So, I just want to encourage you to continue to rest. And you can't just sit on your bed all day. That's not rest. That's something else. But you can choose, you can choose to slow your rhythm enough to be at peace, to be refilled, to be refreshed. Nobody's going to choose that for you, especially in our society. No one. They will celebrate when you achieve and then celebrate more and then be disappointed when you don't. You have to do it on your own. You have to do the tough work of the soul on your own, right? That's a big deal. But we've been in Mark for the past 37 or 38 sermons that I've done at least, basically. And we're getting close to the end. The last time I preached was the time in the garden when the disciples fell asleep and Jesus continued to try to wake them up. They wouldn't wake up. They were in Gethsemane, um, a secret place Jesus would get away. We've, we found out he has a rich friend that has a garden, which is just like ministry. Like every pastor has somebody who has some place to get away. It's just funny how Jesus had that too. That's pretty amazing to me. He goes there, tries to make it through the night. He does the tough work, the battling. And this is the interesting part. He battles alone and you see him battling And then in this next passage, where there actually is battle, there's no more battle in Jesus. It's a peaceful Jesus. So he did this tough fighting in the night. And when actual fighting happens, it looks as if he's the one in control. It's crazy. There's men who show up who literally, one of the things they would do, and I'll read this passage in a minute, when they're taking a captive is stomp the front part of their foot to shock them so much so that they can grab them. 
That happens to Jesus, right? He's still at peace in this. But when he's alone in the garden and his disciples are sleeping, this anguish, agony, fighting, wrestling, it sounds as if he's a man who has come to terms with the tough will of God for his life. And if you can come to terms with it, it is much different walking through it, right? He knows it's the will of God. He's going to die, right? There's no version of this where he doesn't die. This version, this is him dying. He's at peace with it. And so he looks as if he's in control when all of this is happening around him. He's peaceful. He's serene. It's really a beautiful picture of our Jesus in the midst of a passage where I think specifically in this passage, and there's some more stuff coming, there are things that these disciples can look back on and replay in their mind that would cause an immense amount of shame, an immense amount of, some of the most shame probably, specifically speaking in this passage. And I know that we're all familiar with playing back things that cause shame in our lives and then responding to them differently. Some of us hide, some of us medicate, some of us act like it didn't happen, some of us get it out in the open too much to too many people. Some of us bring it before Jesus and watch what he does with it and then use it as a tool to help others. I think it's interesting. But I want to read to you Mark chapter 14, verses 42 through 52. You guys can follow along on one of these screens. That one's broken. <laughs> All righty. And immediately. So this is a phrase only used for Judas. Eight of nine times it's used. It's used to explain what Judas does. It's really interesting. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once he said, Rabbi, a term he had never used to this point, and asked and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut his ear off. Wasn't aiming for his ear. Was aiming for his head, but guy had Jedi moves and ear off. We know that's Peter because of John 18. I'm going to read that in a minute. You all know that's Peter. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled, speaking of the disciples. <laughs> That's awesome. And a young man, the most peculiar two verses in scripture, which have now become so profound for me. I'm hoping I do not botch these for you today, but I might. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but I guess they just grabbed the linen cloth because homeboy took off naked. <laughs> and he ran away naked through the woods like we all do, right? Amen. This was, that, that was those last two verses when I was in seminary. I remember doing the study of Mark, um, inductive Bible study in seminary, and this passage really jumping out to me. And you probably already know this, but a lot of people think specifically that this garden actually belonged to the parents of Mark and that Mark was probably a child at the time and that he had heard what was happening rustling and bustling and he goes out in his night clothes and it's actually Mark 
and he's giving an ode to himself. Like that's kind of what theologians think. He's like, this is, that was me. That was, that little, that boy was me, the naked boy. But after studying this and in prayer this week, I realized God is trying to show something much, much deeper in this person, in this passage. And I hope that you get that in a minute. Um, but here, and just like the previous passage, God is allowing these situations to come up, which don't show us how to not do what they did. It's not, I think the wrong reading of this passage is to be like, oh, don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that. But God is bringing these situations that allow the things of the heart to come to the surface because of what he's about to do. This is not an indictment. Even on Judas, which is the saddest person in Scripture, Judas just happens to flee, right? He's the only one who doesn't become cleansed by what God does through the resurrection. But he chooses his own path and goes away from Jesus. All the others who remain next to Jesus have done similarly terrible things. All become amazing men of God in the Bible, right? All of them. So Jesus is allowing these things to surface through these situations to show, these are things that I would like to get my hands on, and give me just a minute because I'm coming right back, and I will do with these what needs to be done. But for you right now, it just plays out as shame. And shame, shame has a way of embedding itself deeply into our hearts, especially the shames connected to when we actually are with Jesus. For me specifically, the ones before Jesus, I've heard so many gospel messages about the forgiveness of God. And I'm not saying that we overdo the forgiveness of God because it's huge, but that's not all of Christianity, just the forgiveness of God. I don't really struggle with the things I did pre-Christianity. Like, I, I get it. I did all that nasty, terrible stuff. Cleanse, cleanse, cleanse. Thank you very much. Believer, moving on. The ones that, that I continually struggle with are the ones that I walk through post-salvation. The ones that are like, I did know better. I for sure knew better. I was walking with Jesus, right? I did do that. How do, how do you make sense of that? Like, for me, those are the shameful things. I can think of a situation when I was a youth pastor about three years in that for some reason, I think I was even like walking through some pretty tough sin of my, on, my, on my own behind the scenes that people didn't know about, but still trying to figure out how to live and wrestle through things. And there was this one Wednesday night where I decided I was going to preach like they did back in like the 1800s where it was like they said people were like holding on to like people would preach the wrath of God, and people would have to like stand holding posts and be like, ah, don't preach that anymore. And I did that. These three new girls showed up at a youth service, and I went into the passage about the narrow road. And I went so deep in. People, every kid in the, in the youth house that we had was weeping. Like, and I had no grace about what I was saying. I was like, you, I did the whole, you're all basically going to hell because this says that, and these three new girls that showed up so happy, they were like, I'm so glad to be here. People didn't get any family that day. They didn't get any connection. They got the hardest word of God ever spoken. And I know some of you are like, well, you need to preach. This was not covered in the grace of God. This was a, I want to get a response. I don't feel good about myself. I'd love to elicit something. I never saw those three girls again. That is so disappointing to me. And that's not the only story where I took... I took something for personal gain and tried to use a tool that I thought was God's to advance myself. And the kind of shame connected with that for me is always much harder. I still struggle through it. There are things that have happened to me 
with people in the name of God that I still need prayer to get through. Many of you have that story, right? Many of you have the story of someone abusing you in the name of God, right? Those are shames that are much more difficult, I think, to grasp. But today, we're going to talk through maybe how to do that. I want to pray first, if you'll close your eyes with me. Lord, I love that this word is how you decided to show us you, to illuminate you. This word without you, it doesn't work. This word is you. It is alive and it is active and we can lean into it with our questions, with our uncertainties, needing faith because all of the answers aren't mapped out. There are places that we don't really know what to make sense of. So we lean into this with faith, trusting that you see the whole picture when we don't. And specifically, when things don't turn out the way that we think they should, like these disciples, help us to be faithful in those moments. What does it look like? In Jesus' name. Judas is a person here who shows up. A couple things about him that I think are important. He never actually called Jesus Lord. Um, The stories about him scripturally... The big one we know is the one that he's upset about the money. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He didn't understand how someone could give that amount of money to pour upon Jesus. Didn't value that at all. They could have been used to do something else. He, the word immediately is used of him eight of the nine times it's used about him. He is someone Jesus loved. I'm not making that up. I'm not trying to stretch it to make this work. Jesus literally loved Judas. Judas knew where Gethsemane was. Judas had to go before Pilate, get permission. He had to take a large group of soldiers and a leader of those soldiers. And in my mind, when I think about this story, I never thought about there being more than maybe 30 guys with Judas. There's around 600 people that go, go to get Jesus. Around 600 people go do this. In my picture, it's not that, right? Who, who thought it was maybe like 20 or 30 people? Right, it's not. It's enough people that when they show up, Jesus, the question makes it like, what? Really? I was just, like, just yesterday, I was just with you, and you're going to bring 600 people in the dark at night? Judas walks up to him, and beforehand he had made a decision to show them the one that I kiss is the one that you need to take. Like I said, when that happens, the guards walk over. Customary thing to do would have been to stop on the foot so much so that it would be jolting. They grab Jesus, right? Which makes sense. Peter's response, it's like an act of war. If somebody stomped on my foot, my initial response would probably be karate like or something like that. I don't know karate, but I would do something. So Peter's response, right, is the cutoff is war. What surfaces in Peter's heart is war, right? He still believes this Jesus is here to conquer in a different way than he's actually going to conquer. I also think for Judas, Judas doesn't know that Satan has entered him, and Satan isn't now in control. Theologically, I cannot make that make sense, but he's blind spiritually, and he does things very detrimental to himself and others. He has no idea. Satan has now entered him, right? We understand Satan has entered Judas. He is doing things right now. A couple questions that Jesus asks after I read John 18. And And John 18 is a much different depiction of this account. If you guys want to turn to that. This is verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, 
where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. (laughs) This is crazy to me. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Like that. There's no like, Jesus wasn't like, I am he, and was like, shove you a little bit. He said, I am he, and people fell over. Not Christians. It's just, that's crazy. That's not mentioned in Mark. I am he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again. I love that he like asked them again. So who is it you were? Who is it you were seeking? And there's the guys like laying down. Like we were. Well, we were just talking about seeking you, but maybe we were seeking somebody else. <laughs> we had thought there's a couple people out here we were looking for. You can just do what you want to do, I guess. Whom do you seek? And they said Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, "I told you that I am He. So if you seek me, let these men go." This was to fulfill the word that had been spoken. Of those. Whom you gave me, I have lost not one. It's great. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, we know who it is now, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Interesting fact about this guy. People actually think he was probably becoming a believer. This person whom the ear was struck off of was someone who historically people think probably was a believer. (laughs) So how confusing is that? To everyone and to him. He's probably like, oh, this is getting crazy. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? Again, reminding people, I have already made peace with the will of my father. Do not take that from me. For me to suffer for you, it has to happen. There's no version of this where I come and cut everyone's ear off. There's, there's so Many things we need from this passage right now in life. There's so many things you and I need today from this passage. A couple questions that are asked. And the questions that Jesus asks are always interesting because he's not really interested and he's not really baffled. When he says, you, you come at me with a kiss, he's not confused that Judas would do that. He's trying to highlight to Judas why he did what he did. Judas is someone who is taking something sacred and sensitive, the sensitivity of the relationship with him and the Father, and manipulating that part of it for his gain. There is a lot here for American Christianity. He has taken something intimate and put it on a pedestal for his gain. I have been so guilty of this in the past. I've been guilty of putting on display my connection with the Father for it to be seen only for my gain. And he's the only one that doesn't make it through with Jesus. That doesn't sound terrible, right? Like, it's good to be intimate with Jesus. It's good to have a relationship. But when you start to capitalize and monopolize on that for your gain, I'm not saying you're Judas and about to do what he did, but he's the one in this story. So be careful. The motivations behind your heart 
when you are displaying your affection for your father. If it is not for him, it is not okay. It will never be okay. There is no good end in sight. If it is for him, all day long, all day long, do it. The environments I've been in my life, the most uncomfortable environments are Christians who have manipulated this portion of spirituality. I hate it. It's despicable. I feel like it is blasphemy. Manipulation of the Holy Spirit. Look at me and my and what I'm doing. It is not okay. And it never will be. And it's not even helping us. Sit down if you need to. Be quiet. Let the Lord form your heart. Do deep work. You're not getting anywhere with it. But also, don't become the judge of everyone's spirituality. There are those who do this, and it's real. And they're in this room. And it's okay. Just don't manipulate for your own gain what you think you can get through a spiritual gift. Does that make sense? That's Judas. It's the one I'm going to kiss. It's the one I display affection for. Watch me do this. Walks right up to Jesus and does it. Jesus knew, right? That's why he said, a kiss, Judas? He wasn't confused. He was saying, I need you to know this is what you have done. This is the shame that you have carried into this. You're manipulating our relationship for your gain. It's not okay. Peter cuts off a stinking ear. This one hits so close to our home here in America specifically, it's ridiculous. But some people are so blind to see that this is what's actually happening that they can't even think through this. Jesus is not okay with violence for violence. He's not okay for us to harm someone in his name. He literally heals someone who's harmed by his disciple. It's not okay. This is religion at its worst. This is the Crusades. This is Facebook attacks when people talk about your Jesus. Oh, no, they won't. Oh, no, they won't. You're trying to say Jesus did this? Oh, no, he didn't, and you did, and I hate you and your mama. Doesn't help. Doesn't help. Doesn't help. Jesus is not asking you to cut off ears. He's asking you to stand with him. He's asking you to be present with him. He doesn't need you to protect him. He doesn't need you to picket Target or Starbucks or whoever else. That's not the goal. The goal is, will you remain faithful with him when your life's in jeopardy? Will you remain faithful when you're not succeeding anymore? Will you remain faithful when you don't win? That's this. Peter cannot get it. He's like, this has got to be what you're supposed to do. I'm protecting you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, you're not. You're actually take, trying to take me from the will of God. Sit down, Peter. Put your sword away, right? Like, put your sword away, bro. I don't need you to cut people's ears off. So much damage has been done in this. So much damage. So many us versus them things have happened in this. So many accusations have flown in this. So many of our own deepest wounds are because of this. This is the religion at its worst. It has to be. Harming others in the name of Jesus. Right? So even apologetics to me, which I think has a case, and I agree with, we should be able to defend our faith, has to be in the right tone. Has to have the heart of the gospel. Or what are we doing? Are we trying to win? Does it matter if you win and lose the person who ear, whose ear is cut off? Does it matter if you're right and this person never, and these three girls never show up to church again because the youth pastor is an idiot? Because I was? No. Sometimes you win by not winning. Like Jesus. He loses to win. 
Teach that in any sport and you'll never coach again. All right, here's the plan for this week, guys. We're going to lose every game. It's going to be beautiful. Or like parents are like, um, just one quick question, real quick. Is there another team we can get on? <laughs> and that's us in Christianity when this comes up. The disciples cannot make sense of it. They're like, that's why they flee. This is not turning out the way we thought. So because it's hard now, I don't want what Je- what's about to happen to Jesus to happen to me. It's easier for me to just take off. Resurrection doesn't come unless there's a death. If you want to know a theme here at the end of Mark, there is no resurrection without a death. There is no resurrection power without submission unto death. There's no version of Christianity where we live the spirit-filled, empowered life where we have not died. We're just Peters, cutting people's ears off, trying to win arguments. Man, so if they would have prayed, if they would have stayed up all night and been like the best prayers ever, previous passages thinking Jesus like, you guys are so good at praying, instead of like, third time guys, for real? You guys are like the best prayers ever. There's, I, just, I have this picture of them surrounding Jesus in a loving way and walking with him. Tell us what to do, Father. Tell us what to do. And he would have just been like, I'm going to die, guys. And I have to. All right, we're going with you. <laughs> this is strange. Don't make sense. They can't see that in just a few days, the resurrected Jesus changes history. And we can't see when we choose to die the resurrected version of every part of our life and what can happen in this, in this world with it. And not even just this world in you, right? What can happen in you? The parts of you that you cannot drown. The parts of you that will not fade, will not die. When those are finally given to the Father, instead of fleeing or fighting or pretending like Judas did, that's when the things happen that need to happen in our lives. It's confusing. So this character, this character is really interesting to me because here's why. I'm going to explain it to you quickly. This character is randomly tossed in by the actual author himself and becomes naked in the scene, which I'm not sure how many of you have ever been naked in public, but I haven't either, and that's good. And we should probably continue that path, all of us. I would just throw that out. Just maybe just don't get naked in public because it will be embarrassing. It will be shameful. In fact, all throughout Scripture, starting in Genesis, whenever someone is naked, it's almost always connected with an immense amount of shame an immense amount of shame, being naked. Ever since they ate the fruit, they realized it, and they realized their humanity, and they wanted to hide, and so they hid in clothing. And here we have a picture of a young man in the midst of three or four of the disciples' worst decisions becoming naked. I believe it to be metaphorical 100%. Because we see that when Jesus goes to the cross... He isn't wearing a little waist thing like we all, what are, I don't even know what those are called, but don't anybody ever wear those. Don't be naked either. Put on different clothes. But when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes naked. He goes naked to the cross. And I believe the picture that's being said here is that when he goes to the cross, he is taking our shame. He is taking all of it. When he is on the cross, he is taking your deepest darkest shames, the ones before Christ, the ones 
in Christ, the ones after Christ. He is taking them. He is taking the ones of the people near you. That is it. That is always it. He is naked on the cross, and then he clothes us. Can you bring up Isaiah 61? This is verse 10 and 11. This prophetic picture in Isaiah, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This naked person, I believe, is a representation of the shame that we all have, that he wants us to know. He went to the cross for that, even after salvation, because all these dudes are walking with Jesus. Those are the things that he came. And so today as we pray, I really want to do kind of a picture with you guys, some imaginative prayer. So I want you to close your eyes. If you're anything like me, I don't like to revisit the shames because I don't really know what to do with them on my own. Because some of my shames are the kind that if I shared it with you, you would look at me differently, even though you know me. Those are the realities of the shames. And I think a lot of us probably have those. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to picture Jesus going to the cross. And this thing that has been a point of contention for you that causes such shame that you feel broken when you think about it, it's something you've actually done. It wasn't a mistake. Don't even label it as that. Let's just be honest. It was something you chose if it's anything like mine. Now I want you to see yourself walking over to Jesus. He's on the cross. And you're able to hand this to him. And he is joyful that he gets to receive this. Really do this in your mind. Imaginative prayer. You walk over to to the Father while he's on the cross. And as soon as you hand this to him, he steps off the cross. He begins to clothe you. He clothes you with salvation, with righteousness, with truth. He clothes you with peace, with joy, with forgiveness. He clothes you with purpose. He is the one who restores. There is nothing that even needs to be hidden with him. He has seen the nakedest version of you. He has understood the motivations behind it. You have heard the accusations of people saying, this is the punishment you deserve. And he is saying, no, I saw why those things happened and I see why you chose them. And I want to heal the core of those things. The second thing I want to do, and you can open your eyes for this one. I want to do a corporate forgiveness for the ears that we have cut off. We need to do that. If we can't do that, People won't want our God. So, Father, especially for me, I repent that I have used your name or tried to build 
youth groups and churches so that I could have some sort of self-esteem and feel good about myself. I repent of that. I repent of putting together programs at churches to make something awesome and all the while walking past people in relationships that needed you. I repent for trying to build my own kingdom. I repent for saying harsh words to people in your name as if I'm some sort of prophet only out of selfish gain. I repent for the times that I have stood up and made a show of my emotions with you because I felt like it might get me somewhere in a group that I was in. God, I repent for the hurtful words maybe I've said to people in this room that even if I'm unaware of, I'm sure it's happened. Help me to see clearly the things that I've said either through preaching, through email, through conversations where people have felt belittled, people have felt like they've been attacked, people have felt the opposite of what you wanted me to do. Help me to see clearly and help me to know that the people that I need to walk up to and ask for forgiveness. Help me to help make it right. My third prayer. Those things spoken over you are done to you by people who represented Jesus, who are Peter's. We just got to let them off the hook. That's just it. You got to let them off the hook. So Jesus, we just ask that the people who have harmed us in your name, that you would heal them. They need it. They don't understand, or they wouldn't. Judas definitely didn't understand. We see that when he went and committed suicide shortly after. It was too painful. The weight of the shame was so, so unbearable that he ended his own life. And we pray for anybody who's doing anything like that in the kingdom, in megachurches or small churches or life groups, that you would bring them to a knowledge to understand the harm they're doing, but that you would help people to be free from that. You just need to know. Jesus healed the ear of the, peop- the person whose ear was cut off. So if you've been harmed, he's ready to heal you. Like it, that's not, it's not a part that he's not willing to do. Peter cut it off, he healed. He's ready to heal you. He wants to heal you. Emotional, spiritual, physical, mental, relational. He is willing and able to do it all. So, Father, we thank you for that. You guys can stand with me at this point. If our prayer teams could come up today. If you need to stay at your seat and pray on your own, be at peace. If you would like someone to pray with you, to agree with you, we have people who are awesome that can do that for you. As they're coming, there's one last thing I want to say to you that I've There's two things. I'm a little bit early for me. For most churches, I'm not. But for me, I'm a little bit early. Thing number one, some of you feel like God's speaking to you about a thing that is possibly hard. And your struggle with it is overwhelming and agonizing you. And I think he wants me to say to you, some of you need to make peace with it. And you'll walk through it much differently. You'll you'll be the peace and serenity in the storm. Make peace with the will of God. And number two, I've had this picture for the past two weeks of our church. We're not going to do this today. It'd be too much. Holding hands in a circle. And specifically, as we transition into what God's about to do for our church, there's just a vast, limitless amount of possibilities. So many of you are feeling like God's about to do crazy stuff. I feel it. But I have this image because at first... I thought on Sunday mornings we need to start getting all the volunteers together before church and share the worship journey for the day and just look in each other's faces and pray together and just love one another. And then this morning I realized God was trying to paint a picture, maybe prophetically, I don't feel like I'm a prophet, but maybe that's what it was, 
And I saw us holding hands, and I saw us singing together, and all of us had these different parts. All of us. There were like eight of you that sang in alto. Is that a thing? And then there's another thing that people sang in, which is like tenor. And then there's a bass group. And, and when they all sang on their own, it was like, that's kind of good. It's not the best I've ever heard, but it's kind of good. But as they all sang together, it became this rich sound that we all were singing together. And the city of Smyrna took notice of it. I feel like that is for our church for the next season. So if you're sitting on the sidelines, I'm asking you to step up to the plate, not to do more than you need to do, but to start to sing your notes. Make sense? All right. All right. Many of you can't sing, and, and I don't think that's an invitation for you to actually sing up here, just for clarity. So, Father, uh, worship, you're already up here. So, Father, we just, I thank you for passages that make us look at things that don't feel good. I thank you for the feelings that stir in me when I see this. I instantly feel resentment. I instantly feel dread that I will have to walk through some type of death again in my life. But if I can hand it to you and do it faithfully, you show me that there's so much beauty in it. This is all part of the first being last. This is all part of the father sending his son to serve the world. He takes off shoes to wash feet. He kneels before man who he created. This is all part of us reclaiming the gospel that looks like people loving so selflessly that it is, just takes off. I see a revival of generosity. Forgive us for the things that we have done to hinder that. Bring us to life today, Father. Restore, heal, redeem. I don't ever do this, guys, but I'm going to do it. There's at least two people in here. God is restoring a calling that you felt like was dead, and you know today he's reminding you. You need prayer. I will pray with you up front. Come find me at the end. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you've given us community. As we go, as we pray, we pray that we do it in your name. We do it faithfully and lovingly in Jesus' name. Thank you again for joining us today. And please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com.